Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. What is this, amateur hour? Yeah, I ain't no Superman businessman like you. You know, I'm just a amateur, I suppose. Amateur hour is what's happening. <laughs> amateur hour is what's happening. Football, friendship, and fun, that's what we do. We watch the Chiefs and talk about them too. Amateur hour. Amateur hour podcast. I'll tell you once more before we start to record. Amateur hour. Ryan Scott Hall and his darkness. You know that these guys are the best in the biz. Amateur hour. Amateur Hour Podcast I'll tell you once more Before we start to record Amateur Hour Amateur Hour Amateur Hour Amateur Hour Amateur I think it's about time to start the show. Just one more chorus, then away we go. Amateur hour. Amateur hour. A podcast. Here comes Ryan and Dirk, your favorite amateurs. Amateur hour. Yeah, that's how we start season nine, folks. Welcome into Amateur Hour. I am Ryan Scott Hall. And in the other corner, standing at five foot, 10 or 11 or so, six foot, six, two, six, three, six, three, just like Shea Serrano. It's your man, who's darkness. What up, Dirk? Sup? Hey, is this, is this season nine? I thought it was season 10. Uh, no, it's season nine. Wait. I thought it was. 2012? Well, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21? I don't know. Maybe I counted wrong. 10. <laughs> I gave it a 10. Well, uh, welcome to Amateur Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Redo the whole uh, intro. Redo the whole intro. I'm, I'm an English that? teacher, not a math teacher. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How do we do it? We both we both got long hair. Is this the longest haired we've ever been? You look like Aaron Rodgers, like Aaron Rodgers. No, your hair was longer when we started. I feel like we've like switched uh, places, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Well, how, how often do you how often do you condition? Um, I'd use leave-in conditioner. Leave-in? Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to uh to Whitney. She does uh, amazing work on my hair. She, and I was like, hey, if I'm going to have hair, I want to take care of it. She's like, use this leave-in conditioner. So, yeah. So you don't shower with the – when you put conditioner in the shower? You shower with the shampoo, and then when you get out, you put in the leave-in conditioner. Oh, wow. 
Uh, so that was this week's deep dive into my hair care routine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't worry, folks. There's another deep dive coming. It's Ooh, coming. That's a tease. That's what we call a tease in the podcast game. Um, listen, so the last time you all heard from us, we, uh, we did a Super Bowl preview. And it uh, then, then had like one of the worst Super Bowls. Ever, I didn't. Um, I didn't even watch the game. I we did the podcast, and I just, I was done for the season. So I knew we were doing a, a we were doing a show after. So I had no reason to watch. So yeah, I mean, we, did it, it didn't go well. <laughs> did it go well? I mean, honestly, like I kept it. It keeps making me think of Cat Williams because we sat there with all this confidence, and yeah, you know, we're still probably like admitting that Tom Brady is you know, a tough out and all these different things. But like, I was supremely confident going into that Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, maybe we got what we deserved. As Cat Williams would say, shit. you know, you shouldn't have been talking shit. talking shit. Well, honestly, uh, I think we needed the humbling. And by we, I don't mean the team. I mean us as fans, probably, because I was almost, I was almost bored with winning last year. Uh, and I'm back this year, ready to uh, to slap some fools around. Um, I don't want to see these, you know, three point victories anymore, where we just pull it out at the end. I want to smack some bitches up, like my prodigy homeboys. Uh, so it was a good humbling, and I'm I'm ready again for this season. So let me ask you this then, just based on that, you think that maybe the team didn't need a smackdown, um, but it certainly sounded like they used it as motivation this off season. It's not like they sat and watched it, you know, a dozen times or anything, but I mean, I feel like I've heard from coaches and players alike that watching that Super Bowl at least a couple times in order to self scout was certainly something that like lit a fire. You know, I mean, I, I heard an interview today that Travis Kelsey did, I think with Pete Sweeney shout out to Arrowhead pride um, and he asked Travis about kind of disappearing this off season. And Travis was like, look, I mean, I, I didn't want to give off the impression that I'm just like on vacation and having an amazing time after a loss like that. And, and I don't think that that was him like covering for, I was on vacation and having an amazing time. But he was just like, you know, even the optics of that are, are bad enough. But he's like, it, you know, it, I took it really hard. Um, and I mean, look, hard to read into what some of these guys say because they're so trained to speak to the media. But I mean, do you think that this team maybe has like a, a renewed sense of, I don't know, uh, a goal, right? Because getting back last year and running it back and all that stuff, I think we were excited about it. but. Um, I don't know. I guess I maybe believe in this team quite a bit. Well, I mean, they knew everything that we knew. Uh, they knew that they had never lost by two scores with Patty Mahomes. Um, I mean, they won every game last year except for the Raiders game and then the week 17 that didn't matter. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they I think they just had a sense of invincibility about them that they just nobody expected that. I mean, just like us fans. None of them, none of the players or coaches probably expected that to happen either. So, I mean, 
Um, so I think it probably was a bit of an awakening for them. Like, holy shit, like this is possible. And, you know, maybe you're, some other teams are on our level and we can't just get by. Now, that's not me saying that they thought they could. But during the game, I bet I'm sure they're all think, like, what, when's it going to happen? Like, when are we going to come back? And maybe they started pressing a little bit because it's just, man, this should be happening. It's, let's let's make it happen quicker. Uh, almost like we saw this Sunday, really. Um, and it just didn't really happen. And that can happen in a, a football game. Um, and they just weren't used to it, weren't expected. I'm sure they were shocked as hell. I mean, after the game, they're probably just like, what the fuck? I mean, what how how did this happen? I don't I don't think it was in I heard Kelsey say it was just like we never thought this was a possibility. Like like, and, you know, you think about things just like they, just like us. Um, and I'm sure they're like, you know, we might lose this game, but certainly not going to lose like that. Uh, so I just don't think anybody thought it was even on the radar. Yeah. And I wonder if like, you know, a hard fought close loss or whatever um, would have done the same thing for him. Because in the in a game of inches, when you're thinking about all the stuff I think that fans have probably chalked that game up to, I know I certainly have. And that's things like what happened with Andy's son being a huge distraction and obviously all the injuries on the offensive line. Um, I mean, it feels like there are kind of baked in excuses a little bit, at least for me, from my my fan perspective. I don't think that the team would ever necessarily do that. But man, they they just got beat up so badly in that game that I do think that they're probably entering this season with uh, with quite a bit of motivation. And well, and really, I don't think it, it wasn't like that hard to figure out what happened. I they even I think they broached this during the game. It was like, well, that was weird. It was like a real head scratcher. I still haven't figured that one out. And it was like, no, our entire offensive line was out. There have a defensive line full of hall of famers and they're all fucking pissed off because they've been listening to chiefs nonsense for months after we went to their house and embarrassed them doing backflips in their end zone that's what a pissed off fired up team looks like and and they kind of took it to us mm-hmm. um i mean they're more fired up they're more ready they're more healthy uh, and they beat the shit out of us yeah on yeah. on defense on offense eh, the first half i mean yeah, we all kind of forget about those calls. I, I still, there's no way I'm watching that first half ever again because I will still just, I will get so fucking pissed. Like I can't even broach that first half. I give them all the credit. I, I'm, I'm actually happy that we end up losing as bad as we did and we don't have to look back at those calls because I would just, every time I pulled up Twitter and they just brought up something about the game, I would just be like, but those fucking PI calls, they didn't make any fucking sense. Not a single fucking one of them. Like I, I didn't. And I just, I'd have to argue with every single person online. Whereas, you know, a 20 point loss, I can just accept it. Like, okay, they won. That's fine. You know, we got screwed over in the first half, but it's not like we deserved anything in that game. So they win. I'm, I'm glad to see that you still have that fire in your belly. And that as soon as you start thinking about that game, it just goes sideways very, very quickly. Um, Because that's the last time that everybody heard from us. I know you had kind of prepped up like some storylines for this season. We will obviously talk about the Browns game, but maybe some bigger picture stuff starting off with you, Dirk. Well, and, and this was just kind of, I want to do this segment. Um, it's just kind of, it was my top five questions heading into the season. Um, so I just want to use that and then, you know, we'll kind of uh, see how they did with them in the first game and how we, how we see them going for the rest of the season. 
Um, so without further ado, we got five, my biggest five questions heading into this season for this Chiefs team. Um, number one, how much do they run the ball? Um, so, you know, everybody knows about the offensive line overhaul. Um, it seems like they kind of leaned into like having a more uh, stout uh, run, run producing type of offensive line. Um, and I'm just, I was kind of curious, like I, I reached a point where I was like, is this what we want? Because yes, they might be get better at running the ball. Um, but what's the right mix here? Because, you know, you want to be able to, you want to be better at running the ball. So you have uh, a better balance on offense, but you also don't want to take the ball out of Patrick Mahomes' hands. So what's what's the right mix here? They kind of built this line, so it's more physical. They'll be able to run the ball better, um, but how much will they actually do it, or will it just look a lot like last year, with maybe a better running game at the end to put things away? So what's the, what's the right mix there? So <clears throat> this is an interesting thing that started popping up with the moves that they made this offseason, it reminded me that when we hired Andy Reid, um, I did a little deep dive of my own into like what his type was on the offensive line because we were getting ready to go to the Senior Bowl and we're probably going to be picking between what everybody said was Eric Fisher and Luke Jokel. And what I found when I looked at you know, the 12 or 13 years that he spent in Philly was that Andy Reid's offensive lines were some of the biggest in the league year after year. It was like averaging 330 pounds across all five spots. And then over the first few years of him getting here, they get Fisher, who's billed as this, you know, lean athletic guy. And so then they kind of transform the offensive line into lean athletic guys. And I don't know if that was simply because of Eric Fisher or if they just saw something changing in the league or what, but I definitely see that at least this offseason they reversed course on what they've been doing most of the time that Andy has been here. Now, there are some obvious exceptions, but I mean, if you think about the difference between, so like Rodney Hudson, right? He only weighs about 290 pounds and he's, you know, one of the best centers in the NFL over the past 10 years or so. And when he left, the Chiefs drafted Mitch Morse, who played, I think, like all five positions at Missouri and was 6'5", you know, 310, 315 pounds. And so he was a bigger guy at center for sure. And ultimately, we now have Creed Humphrey, too. Um, a, another bigger guy playing center. But I wonder if switching to this more powerful um, and, and certainly sizable offensive line, I wonder if it's about being able to more confidently like kill off games, like you said, like at the end, you know, getting into Andy Reid shutdown mode and being able to kind of, I don't know, just lean on people. I mean, I was calling for it in the Browns game, looking at, all right, we have this long drive in the third quarter. We basically have the ball the entire third quarter. Um, and so when we get into the fourth quarter and it's like, you know, whatever, I, I certainly after we took the lead, uh, Cleveland went three and out and we got the ball back and I'm like, all right, now it's time to run. 
we should just be running at them because their defense has got to be sucking wind. So, I mean, I, I don't know if there's one way or the other um, that, that, that's best for the offense, but I do think at least on Sunday and the one real result that we have, um, I didn't see any issues in pass protection. I, I didn't feel like unless Mahomes was like, really far back in the pocket. I mean, I remember the one play he got sacked on by Miles Garrett, one of the best pass rushers in the league. Um, and Tony Romo was like, this is where you got to step up in the pocket. And I'm going to listen to Tony Romo on that. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there were some deep drops. That, I mean, they were definitely worse in the first half than they were in the second half. Because the first half, I was very concerned about what I was seeing from Orlando Brown. Um, and, you know, maybe some of that's too deep of drops. Uh, but he was also he was getting beat. He's going up against Miles Garrett, so that's fine. But Orlando Brown's also supposed to be your new stud. I mean, he's, he's a first round pick, essentially, and not even just a rookie first round pick. He's in his fourth year, I, I assume. Yeah. Um, so on, on Sunday it was kind of interesting because the first half they really came out and just threw the ball all around to start, and then in the second half they get the ball down twelve and they kind of started establishing the run game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting to see because it was like, okay, I mean, I mean, our first touchdown drive was probably like eight minutes. Um, after halftime, so it was kind of interesting, and I, I almost wonder if it was kind of, I mean, big picture here, if it was kind of a response to that Tampa Bay game, because I think Tampa was probably kind of daring them to run, um, and the Chiefs just weren't confident in the in the running game. Uh, and I've heard Mahomes speak out multiple times now about some RPOs that were called in that game, and the looks kind of made it so they should have run the ball, and he mm-hmm. didn't. He went with the passing play. Uh, and it ended up not working out. Tampa Bay has an awesome run defense, so it, it probably wouldn't – maybe that wouldn't have worked either. But I think what they wanted to do is at least have the option uh, of being able to run the ball. So if, if teams start giving them these looks, um, that they will have that, you know, in their in their backpack, in their arsenal, to be able to run the ball. It certainly makes them more difficult to defend if they can run the ball more effectively. Um the thing is that, I mean, it's still Andy Reid, right? I mean, he still wants to throw the ball far more than he wants to run it. And and any argument that I think is brought to the table, especially if you're trying to do, you know, certain analytical arguments about just never running the ball, like, look, we get it. Pat Mahomes is the best player on the planet. But it's, you know, I, I still think that there's arguments to be made for running the ball um, well, and also, I mean, think about what I just said, that the second half they were running the ball more, and in the second half the offensive line looked a lot better. Yeah. So, I mean, do those play hand-in-hand? Hand? I would say yes, at least to to some degree, yes. Well, and I do remember, I think it was um, in that interview that Patrick did with Alex, um, he was talking about that game, and he was saying, like, yeah, on some of those RPOs, I was pulling it when I probably shouldn't have. And I think it was in the third quarter of that game, like Clyde had a couple nice runs and I'm thinking, you know, time hasn't run out here. Like maybe they should stick with it. Um, I, I will say this at the very least, we know it's only one game. It, you know, it wasn't perfect. They certainly won. Um, but as it relates to the offensive line specifically, this is pretty much exactly what you would want them to have done. Right. Um they have five new starters and once we knew like the players that were going to be on the team, and I'm not even talking about when you get to cut downs, basically like once the draft was over and they suddenly had 
Tooney through free agency, and then Orlando Brown through trade. And then they end up drafting Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith. And you already have Niang. I think looking at it on paper, we were like, three rookies maybe makes me nervous, but like, this is what you want. You want cost-controlled starters. You want young guys that are going to get to develop together. Like, this is the perfect scenario. And I'm still, you know, no offense, Andy, you're so much smarter than I will ever be when it comes to football, Uh, both Andys in this case. Uh, But Andy Heck and Andy Reid, yeah, yeah, I did that. I got it. Um, But I, I think that we should probably be feeling really thankful that, like, Mike Rimmers or Andrew Wiley or, you know, even somebody like LDT is not on the field right now, that they're not just forcing a veteran in there, guys that we've already seen fail many, many times, and that they're actually letting the kids play. I'm excited about that part. Yeah, and for the first time in what, in what feels like the entire Andy Reid era, we don't have like a rotating door at one of those guard spots because it's always just been, well, it's this guy or it's going to be this guy or it's going to be this guy. It's like we have entrenched starters. Once Trey Smith, uh, you know, put himself in there and, and made known what he is, uh, we just had two guards that have been there from day one that will be there for the next four years, mm-hmm. you know, if everything goes according to plan. Um, this kind of bleeds into my next question. Um, my head pegged as my most important player on the team was Lucas Nyang. Am I saying that right? Nyang? Uh, it might, people might lean more into the Nyang of it, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Everybody, Nyang, but whatever. <laughs> well, I should have some inside information on this, but I'll, I'll look into it later. Um, but with the team, um, you know, once Trey Smith kind of, you know, he's going to be set at guard and Creed Humphrey seems like he's having a really good camp. The biggest question mark on the line was Lucas Nyang. I mean, everybody else should be like, well, we've got a pretty solid front, but, you know, tackles and tackles just a lot more important than any interior position. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen Nyang play. So we don't, we don't know shit about him. Like he just didn't play last year. And, and not only that coming off an entire year off and then starting day one. So that's a bigger question mark. So I thought he was the biggest question mark on the team uh, where if he um, were, if, if he were to hit like our offensive line is going to be fantastic. The offense is going to be fantastic. The team is going to be fantastic. So I thought he was like the biggest question mark on the team. And really on Sunday, I would say he played good. Uh, I was almost more concerned about Orlando Brown coming out of that game than, than Lucas Yang. I'm sure Yang was getting more help, uh, but I thought he showed well in that first game. Well, and I think if we're, if we're being honest here, I think the reason that Niang became the starter is because Rimmers got hurt during the preseason. And, and really Rimmers gets a very bad rap, played horrible at left tackle in the Super Bowl. Deservedly so. But in that podcast we were reporting uh, that we did last year before the Super Bowl, I was talking about how great he was all season at right tackle because there was hardly an issue with him over on the right side. Um, And so I think in hindsight, moving him to the left side was one of the bigger mistakes that we made. Um, But he he really did well at right tackle most of the season and then just really shit the bed in the Super Bowl at left tackle. I don't disagree with that. I thought he was more than adequate at right tackle. Um, And I wasn't trying to you know, be hyperbolic by saying like, we should be thanking our lucky stars that Mike Rimmers isn't starting. But I mean, in a general sense, 
I certainly would prefer the guy that is on in the first year of his rookie contract because he opted out as a rookie instead of the 10 year veteran on a one year deal or whatever. Um, I, I just like that they decided to, to go with those guys. I will say on Niang, um, I mean, I think that like the most well-traveled quote in Chiefs draft circles was Chase Young saying that Lucas Niang was the toughest tackle that he faced in college. Um, and I would say a pretty similar player, maybe not ultimately in NFL production. It's It, it remains to be seen in you know both cases, but I mean, Neong having his first day in the NFL against Jadavian Clowney is not an easy assignment. And he probably got some of Miles Garrett occasionally throughout the day too. And I do think he just, you know, showed well enough. You know, I don't feel like Mahomes was like constantly under duress. And maybe that's just a compliment to Mahomes and how smooth he is and how like natural it looks when he's kind of evading pressure and stuff. Um, but I was never like worried about the protection at any point during the game, frankly. I, I probably thought they looked a little worse than than you're giving off. Um, but we did hold Jadavian Clowney to his very standard zero sack game. Uh, so we did a very good job there. Uh, got a, got a maybe, tackle maybe, for loss on that Tyreek reverse. Well, maybe next year he'll get a sack. You know, sacks, are, they're tough for a DN who plays on every single play. It's tough. It's tough out there. You know, for a number one pick that has that much talent, it's tough. It's a tough job. All right. On to the third question. I want to see Clyde Edwards Hilaire get on the field on third downs. Um, and that's mostly to utilize him as a receiver, uh, which I think was, you know, missing in a big way last year. And, and my reasoning was just that we didn't trust him enough on third downs to block. Um, so that kept him off the field on third downs and really limited his receptions. He only had 36 last year. Uh, and that was what I was most excited about with him coming out of college. Cause I just remember watching LSU games. They dumped the ball off to Clyde. He'd make two guys miss. And it was an automatic 10 yards. And I was like, Holy shit, dude, this guy's going to catch 70 balls. And it's just going to be this nonstop. And then we just didn't really see it. Um, so I, I was anxious to see if Clyde was going to pick up blocking well enough to be trusted on third downs. Now, in week one, he played 74% of the snaps. I don't know the breakdown here on third down or anything. And he did have three catches in the game, which is which is more than the average last year. Um, so mixed results there, a little bit more. Uh, but that's something I'm very anxious to see this year is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire catching the ball on third down, or in any down, really, just catching the ball. So a couple things here. Um, first and foremost, I do think it's important to remember that even though they didn't necessarily panic or anything. I mean, the Chiefs trailed the vast majority of that football game, all but maybe, what, the last eight or ten minutes. Um, with that in mind, Clyde getting 17 total touches um, between carries and, and receptions, I think, in a game where we trailed most of the way, sounds about right to me. Um, I do agree with you. And I think probably at this point, every podcast on the planet, they, that we want to see Clyde involved in the passing game, that it was very strange to not see it last year and thought that maybe that was one of the big improvements that could be made this year. And certainly considering the fact that 
the biggest addition that they made, you know, in their offensive like skill positions is what Noah Gray. I mean, we're we're returning all the same skill position guys, you know, but sub in Jarek McKinnon and Noah Gray and Darius Fountain, you know, um, and and Jody Fortson and Blake Bell. Like it's it's not a whole lot, right? And so I think that the assumption for most of us was that going into this season, Clyde was probably number three on the offense behind Hill and Kelsey. Um, probably should be third in like targets and receptions in the offense, um, especially considering the fact that he was, you know, a first round pick and seemingly kind of at least I don't, I don't, it's not like Mahomes made the selection, but he certainly liked him. All right, let, me, let me ask you, are you worried about Clyde just as so, a player? I kind of wanted to like have some kind of a conversation about him because it seems like there is some, you know, discontent among the fan base. Um, and that might be in the dark corners of the internet, but I do think I live, huh? That's where I live. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the way that I see it, um, I do think there's merit to some of the talk about Clyde missing like some cutback lanes um, in this game on Sunday. Um, and I almost wonder if because he's so small and the line's so big that he's like, I just want to sneak around behind these linemen and kept trying to stay close to them instead of looking for space, just looking to, to stay behind this massive wall. Um, and his vision is going to improve. And the whole chemistry of the offensive line and the running back and Mahomes and all that stuff, it's going to take time to grow because it's literally five new starts. It's the first time that all those guys have played together in real live action, right? So there's so many changes. We have to remember that, that even though it does feel really static with the skill positions, um, you know, we've talked so much about continuity over the years, how important it is on the offensive line. Um, and, and that, you know, certainly I think applies to the, the whole offense. I, I don't think that I'm personally concerned about Clyde. Um, I think that if I'm concerned about anything, it's, why isn't he being utilized more? We don't know the answer to that question. You could say him not playing on third down is because he's not great in pass protection and Daryl Williams is or something. Um, and I suppose that's fair, but I don't know that I really want Daryl Williams taking Clyde off the field to pass protect when I could take, you know, DeMarcus Robinson off the field and like put Blake Bell in there to help pass protect and let Clyde go run around. Um, I mean, personally, I would rather see Clyde on the field probably than McColl or DeMarcus or Pringle in some of those situations. Um, if it makes the difference between having, you know, a, him involved in the offense and not. Yeah. I mean, it, just with the first round pick spent on him, uh, I, I just kind of thought he would be, better at this point and it's I mean it's still super early I mean it's game one of year two here um but it's just you know he had a couple big games last year but outside of that I mean was he much better than you know Darrell Williams would have given you all year long I I'm not sure and mm -hmm. for if to spend a first round pick on him he should be that that answer should be a definitive yes um 
So it's it's still young. Uh, it's 14 carries for 43 yards in this game with a long of nine. You know, it's that's just not it's not that great. And it should be a perfect position for him. I mean, it should be teams want to keep two deep safeties with Patrick Mahomes all the time. It should be a running back friendly environment right here. Yeah. Um, and, and just think, I mean, just think if Kareem Hunt were still on this team, do you think he'd be putting up these same stat lines? I would assume he'd be, he'd be putting up much greater stat lines. So one of the things that I feel like I walked away from the Browns game thinking about Clyde was that maybe what he lacks um, is like a suddenness to his game. I don't feel like he's always like going at full steam. And I, oh, don't, yeah. too, and I don't much, too much dancing, too much dancing. And I don't think that that's because he's not fast or anything, but it's almost like he doesn't necessarily run with conviction. Certainly it's a different, it's a very different running style from Kareem who just plans on destroying people. Is like, it? He wants to snatch bodies when he is running. And Clyde, it seems like, is more about trying to be elusive and avoid. I think I've, I know what he is. He's an uphill runner. Interesting. He's running uphill as opposed to all these running backs who are always running downhill. Okay. And I'm, and I'm always like, what the fuck does that mean? We finally have our answer, and Clyde is an uphill runner. It's like he's always running uphill. Like, no, no, just go. Just go okay. faster. Make a cut and go. Okay, so – we wasted all this time trying to come up with the perfect nickname for Clyde and it should just be Sisyphus then. I don't know what the hell that is, but yes. The guy that pushes the rock up the hill for his oh. forever, ever. That's his, no, no. no. Uphill oh, runner. Uphill, no. uphill. No, I'm, think, I'm picturing the uh, the Price is Right with the, uh, the, the mountain climber. Isn't it yodeling too? Like yodeling, yodeling, yodeling. Yeah. So we need to start playing that song when he's, when he's running, when he's dancing in the back. <laughs> All I, right. I think, um, real, real quick, I, I think that he came in, I remember listening to him and they were talking about like, you know, hey, what's this transition like going from being in college to being a pro? Has it been difficult to learn the playbook and all this and that? And he was like, I don't have to go to class anymore. Are you kidding me? Like college is over. I only have to focus on football. Um, he just seems like a very sharp guy um, that was obviously incredibly talented at LSU. And I think that maybe in some ways, like what we got isn't necessarily what we expected. And that could speak to not really finding the right way to utilize him. It's so, it, it, it seems ridiculous for anyone to call in the question decisions that Andy Reid and his coaching staff make about this offense. Like I, I just, and don't, I don't want to like say, well, we should never talk about stuff that, you know, calls into question Andy Reid's decision-making, but like to say why aren't they using him this way that we think that he should when we don't have all the information available is kind of hard for me. But I, I will admit that sometimes it feels like it. It's like, why isn't he running that pass pattern through the middle of the offensive line and just to the sideline one way or the other when linebackers are not going to be able to cover him a lot of times? Like that, his ability, because he's elusive, to shake people at the top of his route and create separation, he's got that low center of gravity. He's such a shifty player, and it just seems like 
we're not getting him in space with the ball in his hands the way that we should. And so I wonder if that's, I, I, I don't, I don't really know what it is. I really don't. And I don't know that anybody does, but I, I can sure as hell say that it's frustrating because I don't think that he's quite what we all expected. Um, and that I think people are using his validation to say that it was a bad pick. Um, but I mean, whatever. I don't know. Hindsight's 2020. And it's yeah. not even worth hindsighting yet. Well, yeah, but I don't think they're wrong. And I think the, you know, the big reason would be, hey, well, he didn't have an offseason last year. So he didn't, you know, he wasn't able to grasp on this. He doesn't know the offense, that kind of thing. This year he should. So I am expecting more from Clyde. Week one, we didn't quite see it. Um, but, uh, you know, a long season to go here. That's why it's a season-long question. All right, fourth question. Chris Jones moving him to defensive end. Um, this was a move that I was not in favor of because I just don't like changing something that works so well. Um, I think he's universally regarded as the second best defensive tackle in the NFL. So I was just, you know, I get moving him out there because, you know, we were weak at defensive end, but we had a whole offseason to address that. Um, and, you know, Melvin Ingram was a guy that I, I just desperately wanted all offseason. He came here and, and visited. I thought I thought we'd get him. And we just ended up never signing anybody. Um, and, and, you know, we eventually we, – we lost a defensive end to injury too. Is that right? Or No, we – I mean, Frank hasn't really been – I guess, okay. You know. So, yeah, so I, I just wasn't crazy about the move. So I was interested <clears throat> to see how that worked out. You got a um, war back, and then that's probably like the move at defensive end other than shifting Chris Jones' position. Uh, so he, he came out – he had two sacks in the game. Um, he had a slow start, but he ended up getting two sacks. I'm going to make a statement here about Chris Jones that I think people will take the wrong way, um, and I'm fine with that. Um, Chris Jones makes as many big plays as anybody, but he doesn't dominate games. Is that a fair statement? I remember him dominating a game, I think, against the Eagles at Arrowhead, I believe. He had like three sacks. He had a bunch of passes that he batted down to the ground. I think he even had an interception return for a touchdown. And it was like, it was absolutely the Chris Jones show. We were there. Yeah. So that's one time. (laughs) Um, And I think that there are certainly people that would argue against it. I don't think it's like the, the hottest take in the world. Uh, because Chris Jones has long had a reputation for taking plays off. Um, and, and that's it. You see a lot of it's it's a lot of if he gets double teamed, he's just going to kind of sit there and, and accept it, which I get. You know, maybe you can't go all out on every single play. So, you know, if I'm double teamed here, everyone else should be single teamed. One of them has to step up and I'm just going to eat these two blockers and, you know, you know, kind of take a rest on a play so I can go harder if I ever get single blocked. So, I mean, I kind of get it and I'm not even being mean to Chris Jones because I think he's great. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a statement like Chris Jones doesn't pull his weight or anything because his sack totals are undeniable and he makes splash plays. It's, it's undeniable. Um, But it's just not like someone who's just going to terrorize the entire game. Like I've seen, you know, JJ Watt in his prime kind of thing. He's just like JJ Watt's taking over games and the offense can't do anything because of him. And I feel like we don't really see that with Chris Jones. So I guess I, I'm making that statement. So then I'm, so if the statement is true, is that a problem? 
I mean, is that a, is that a problem or is that just what Chris Jones is and it's fine? Um, so here's here's what I believe the primary counter argument should be to the thought that maybe Chris Jones doesn't take over games um, or can't potentially. Um, this this year, this I mean, if you want to say the entire defense, that's fine. But certainly um, along the defensive line, and maybe this is a little low-hanging fruit because it is year three of Steve Spagnolo. but this is the most Spagsy defensive line rotation that he's had in Kansas City. The defensive line, for all intents and purposes, is pretty loaded with talent when they're healthy. And I know that there is a lot of hand-wringing for a lot of different reasons, many of which are valid, about Frank Clark, but I think that the value of Frank Clark should have been very apparent on Sunday with him not being on the field. And there's a couple of reasons why first and foremost, having Frank Clark on the field allows the chiefs to be able to push Chris Jones back to defensive tackle in like third and long sort of situations where he can just absolutely dominate people be that second best defensive tackle in the league right and when you talk about somebody like jj watt that guy was moving all over that defense and just wreaking havoc because he's playing all these different positions you never know where he's going to line up he's good on the edge and he's good on the interior and you're just exploiting matchups and getting creative that's exactly what spagnola wants to do but with frank clark out if you moved Chris Jones into defensive tackle on Sunday against the Browns, that means that you would have to have two of Josh Kando and Alex Okafor and Mike Dana on the field, right? And so, and at that point, you're looking at Chris Jones and either Jaron Reed or Treshawn Ward. The problem is, if you look at, let's say, um, the like it was around 18 yard Nick Chubb touchdown run where he didn't even get touched. The guy that was playing right defensive end going up against, I think, their backup at that point, potentially, but it could have been Jedrick Wills. It was Josh Kando. And he bit on the fake and went completely out of the play. And that's what opened up that huge lane. And so if you have Frank Clark playing that side, and it it means that anytime Chris Jones isn't playing the other end, it's Mike Dana or Alex Okafor instead of probably both of them. I think that that's really where they can start to get dangerous and Spags can really get creative. And for the people that have said Chris Jones is, you know, a candidate to be defensive player of the year, I don't necessarily disagree, but I'm going to tell you this. I think that the guy that is going to get the least amount of attention when this defensive line is at full strength is potentially Frank Clark. And I think that Frank is going to end up having a big season if he is healthy and on the field. I think that you're going to see the kind of numbers from him that potentially make it difficult to figure out what you're going to do with him this off season. Um, I mean, ultimately I don't think that he's going to be here next year because it's just such a tremendous amount of money, but we're also in this weird position where it's like I guess he's not getting suspended or are they going to wait until the next season or something I mean I think we we're all expecting him to miss time uh for a suspension 
And Maybe that's why he's not, he's not playing right now. Is he, is he secretly suspended right now? I have no idea. Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I didn't even know he was hurt. I mean, I, I'm following training camp, you know, not too closely, I guess. But I was like, Frank Clark's out? Really? Yeah. I just never really heard his name all all off or all training camp, all preseason, and then it, he was just out. So I, I haven't heard his name really at all. He did have a pretty quiet, like, you know, preseason in St. Joe, right? I would say not a quiet offseason, but a quiet preseason for sure. Um, but, oh, no, he, well, he could have had a silencer on that Uzi. You never know. I think he probably did, and that was one of the problems. Um, <laughs> like he, he was just sitting out of his bag like, yeah, that's my Uzi. That's my Uzi in the back. The Uzi in the Lambo. Uh, but I, I was – hey. hey. Man, that guy's living. That guy's living. I mean, that's sure it's illegal out here. I think it's legal in, in Missouri. Everything he was doing, I think, is legal in Missouri. So that guy's yeah. he's living. Really you know, strict gun laws I, I could get, in California. If I could get an Uzi and drive around a Lambo, I'd be doing it too. <laughs> uh, like, like for real, or like in Grand Theft Auto or something. <laughs> no, dude, I couldn't handle an Uzi. I'd be terrified to see a gun in real life. Terrified. <laughs> Don't even want to look at that thing. No, um, no. But I mean, I, I know that this was supposed to be a, a Chris Jones conversation and I kind of morphed it into a Frank Clark conversation, you yeah. know, sorry. Um, but I mean, I, I think that the pieces are there for this defense and certainly because of the horses that they have up front, I, I think that this could be a pretty dominant unit despite what felt like them just like, flailing and half the time like not even being really near the play sometimes throughout that game against Cleveland I mean I was in the first half Stefanski in some ways put on a show like I I thought they were extremely well coached great play calling Baker was super sharp and the defense just didn't really have any answer for any of it um you you know you just you saw an offense just playing on their own terms they had the lead early. They were able to run the ball. I mean, they were able to call whatever they wanted, and it was going to work. And defense was just on their heels the entire first half. Mm-hmm. Um, so to go into this fifth question, it, it's what will the killer instinct look like on the Chiefs team this year? Um, and this one gets a big, fat, incomplete um, for week one because this is mostly targeted at, you know, last year at the Chiefs, we saw it again and again and again and again. They'd get up two scores, they'd let the other team come back, and then it'd be very close at the end, and the Chiefs would gut out the win. So I'm curious to see if that type of attitude changes this offseason uh, based on how the Super Bowl went, just kind of a more pissed-off, hungry team instead of just like, you know, we're going to pull this out at the end kind of thing. Um, but this really doesn't apply um, to this Sunday because we were behind the whole game, so it wasn't really – so I think we should just kind of dive into the game from there. And I would just describe this game. Watching the Chiefs, they are the quintessential team where if it were anybody but the Kansas City Chiefs, I'd be rooting against them. They're just these heavyweights. They got the best quarterback. It's just a team that's up two scores here. What's, what's the stat on Patrick Mahomes? Patrick Mahomes is 9-2. and two in his last 11 games when trailing by two scores. I think that didn't include the Browns game. So he's, he's won 10 of his last one. He now has 10 comebacks of being behind 10 or more points in his first 
I mean, this is season four of Patrick Mahomes. It's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's watching Alabama. It's like, I don't want to watch this because I know what's going to happen. So I just, I just, I can't cheer for a favorite kind of team. Obviously I can if it's the Chiefs and it's, and it's you know, it's pretty fun. Um, but if for anybody else, I'd be like, this is the team I don't want to root for. And not only that, it was the quintessential game where if I were rooting against the Chiefs, it'd be the worst kind of game because the entire game, like, okay, this is interesting, but I'm not, I'm not buying it. This ain't going to last until that touchdown with about 10 minutes left. And then you get your hopes up and it's like, holy shit, they might actually do this. I finally believe they might pull this off. And then one play later, it's two point game. Mm-hmm. And then three plays later, the punter forgets how to punt. And then three plays later, the Chiefs take the lead, which they never relinquish from there. And it's just in seven plays, it goes from, holy shit, this is actually a game where we might lose. And this is me as a Chiefs fan, because I, I spent no time last year getting worried about games whatsoever. It's just like, eh, we're going to win. And I was a lot, a lot, a lot. I was like that for a lot of this week. Until that score was about 10 minutes left, I was like, holy shit, we might actually lose this one. And then, bam, there it was seven plays later, and the Chiefs got the lead. And it's just the Chiefs at full power and the rest of the NFL. The Cleveland Brown famous has to be so fucking frustrated watching that. Just like, I cannot believe they just pulled this out that quickly, that easily. So going back to the, the stat about winning percentage, win trailing by 10 or more points, it looks like, in the Super Bowl era, Patrick Mahomes has a 62.5 winning percentage. He's 10 and 6 when trailing by 10 or more points. Um, Which is, he must have had his three, most, Jesus, his first three or four must have all been losses because it's either nine or two and 10 and two okay. in his last 11 or 12. So it's, I mean, it's, it's gotten even more so over the last, over late. Well, and it. The, I'm going to learn how to talk here by the end of this podcast. Don't don't worry, guys. I'm going to learn how to talk. That's fine. Um, and it looks like second place is Brady at 39.4 percent, and third place is Montana at 37 percent. Now, granted, you know Mahomes is, has 16 such opportunities, and Montana had about 50, and Brady has had about a hundred. Yes, this will even out over time, yes. But for now, it's just like, whoa. I mean, will it even out? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, We can't do nine and two for – he can't do that forever. No. no well, he's, he's 10 and six, and, like, I don't see any reason why he would just start stacking losses when being down by 10 points because he is, in so many ways, the comeback kid. And so, like, so here's the thing. I I rewatched this game today, and this, I would say, is probably my number one takeaway about the Chiefs offense, and maybe I'm late to the party here, but... Mahomes is good. Definitely good. (laughs) You're way late, bro. You're way late. But here's the thing that I think makes the Kansas City Chiefs truly unique. Truly unique. This is not to say that the Chiefs don't have the ability to be methodical because they are a, I would say, like a variable offense. You know, they went out and ran for hundreds of yards against the Bills last year in that one great game that Clyde had. Uh, but most of the time, you know, Mahomes is lighting you up and, and whatever. But 
I think the difference between this Chiefs team and some of the great teams or great quarterbacks that we have seen in the last 20 years, if you think about guys like Peyton Manning, guys like Tom Brady, their teams were always very, very methodical. And outside of maybe one or two seasons, I wouldn't necessarily consider the Patriots an explosive offense sans the Randy Moss era. Um, the Colts, I would say more so for sure. Marvin Harrison, um, you know, Reggie Wayne, and obviously let's not forget Brandon, Brandon Stokely, who is great on Twitter. Um, but I think that what the Chiefs have offensively is that uncanny ability where every single blade of grass on the field has to be accounted for by the defense. And they consistently, I would almost think at a rate never seen before in NFL history, and this is probably part of more Tyreek Hill mythology than necessarily Patrick Mahomes, but like being able to just go from, let's say, against the Houston Texans in the playoffs down 24 to nothing after the first quarter and be winning 28 24 at halftime that is a that is something that feels very specific to how Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, Tyreek Hill and and Travis Kelsey are able to attack teams. Like they can just turn it on and it wasn't just in that amazing Super Bowl run they do this time and time and time again. And that's not to say that other teams can't score long touchdowns, but it's literally like part of the formula. And that's where maybe to just kind of go back to maybe where we started a little bit today, maybe that's where trying to get Clyde more involved, having a bigger offensive line that can kind of grind games out at the end. And ultimately, I think in the end, making yourself more difficult to defend, maybe that's some of the motivation there is like, we want to be able to just soul crush people in these 15 play drives and kill the clock on teams in addition to being able to do it in one play. And that's not, I mean, they've, they've had the ability to do that, but I think that they have in some ways almost been a little bit, it sounds ridiculous, but kind of a one trick pony in the fact that they're just so explosive that they don't have to be methodical. And, and this might be a lesson learned from the Super Bowl because it's kind of what you're talking about. Okay, let's turn it on. Where is it? And that day, for one day at least, the most important day, it wasn't there. They couldn't turn it on. Now, they may have cleaned up those mistakes, so maybe things are different if they have the offensive line they have now, if they had that then. But it's still nice. You know, you want, you want to be able to adapt and do whatever is necessary. You want to be able to, whatever the defense is offering, you have a counter to it. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's plays into the offense's plan for this season. Yeah. And, and I'll say this, and, and maybe this is neither here nor there for some of you, but neither team scored in the final like seven and a half minutes of this game. And I was thinking it was going to be this really frantic back and forth fourth quarter that's kind of felt like where it was headed and each time the Chiefs or the Browns got the ball it was like 
oh crap, somebody's going to go down and score. And then the other team's going to have to do it. But neither team did. It actually kind of fizzled out. It was really interesting in that way because I was expecting more points, certainly in the fourth quarter. Um, and they both just kind of slowed down. And it really did make me think that like, you know, in week one last year, they had that three or four consecutive goal line carries for Clyde where he didn't score a touchdown. And it was almost like they're never going to give him a goal line carry the rest of the year. Um, and we didn't, I'm, I'm not saying that we saw that in this game, but the Chiefs had two separate opportunities with the ball to try to have that long sustained like game killing drive. And they didn't do it. They were not able to do it. And so I think it's going to take a little bit of time to grow into it, but they definitely need, I want to see that, like, I think they call it the four minute offense that like, we just got to go out and get a few first downs. And I thought the offense had multiple opportunities to do that and they weren't able to close it. It well, actually took some wonky defensive plays to, to get the game over. Well, they, they only had one drive to put it away, but I, I think we saw it a bunch last year. We saw that four minute offense uh, perform last year. Uh, that was kind of one of my bigger season takeaways is that they are so good at that four minute offense. Now, I don't think the running game was a big part of that. It was mostly Mahomes making plays on third down. But yeah, it is kind of interesting how, you know, the Browns go three and out, the Chiefs score the touchdown, the Browns go three and out, Chiefs go six and out. And then the Browns' final drive where they throw that interception. So, yeah, like the, the last handful of drives there, uh, the defense just kind of caught up. I, I mean, it's, it's just kind of goes – I mean, you can't score a touchdown on every drive like in the first half. Like, I mean, the, the Browns pitched a a perfect half uh, in the in the first half. If only that, that play before halftime would have scored, it would have been absolutely the perfect half. Um, and that, that was kind of scary and kind of awesome to see. But, uh, yeah, it's just um, – Speaking of the Chiefs' offense, should we get into a little deep dive action here? Yeah, real quick, before you do, I, I want to give you a, a stat or two on Mahomes. That is going to be like a – One up, a deep dive? Well, I was – this is just like a like a warm-up. <laughs> this is a – this is like a, a – like a shallow dive. This is a we're in the <laughs> we're in the kiddie pool. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not stepping on your deep dive, okay. um, but these are stats that have been passed around and I just, you know, am not even taking credit for them. Matt Derrick uh, said that the career passer rating for September games in NFL history, Mahomes is so much better than everybody um, that he could throw 15 consecutive interceptions. It, literally his next 15 passes could be IMTs and he would still have the career lead. Um, I did a little number crunching. It wasn't hard because he's played, I believe, exactly now 10 games in September in his career. Um, Mahomes' average game in September is 330 passing yards and three touchdowns. Um, <laughs> you have the numbers. I think everybody saw that Mahomes broke NFL records for yards and touchdowns through the first 50 starts. And he still has starts number 48, 49, and 50 ahead of him. Um, I guess that just means what we've all known for a very long time. Patrick Mahomes is absolutely incredible. Well, and actually, I mean, the September stuff, I, it really is, I, I give a lot of credit to Amy Reed, 
um, because of how he treats the preseason. He really focuses on getting his team ready. It was a weird preseason because probably half or maybe more than half the teams just didn't play any of their starters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't really pay attention to week one. Like, I, I don't know who the teams were that weren't doing it. So I would it'd be interested to see uh, how those teams did versus the teams that were playing their starters. Um, but Andy Reid definitely leans into playing his starters more than other coaches in the preseason to get them ready for week one. Um, and maybe that's just with his type of offense or something, but his, I mean, his teams always come out ready, you know, ever since the red wedding of 2014 um, where, you know, we had that disaster versus Tennessee um, ever since then, the chiefs have come out every season, you know, like gangbusters and the first three or four weeks of the season, they're just fully prepared and they kick teams ass, especially in offense. I saw someone mention that the 33 points we scored against the Browns was actually the fewest that we had scored in week one. Um, and it's like basically since we drafted Mahomes. So even in 2017, when Alex was the starter, it was like 42, 38, 40, 34, and then 33 this year. Um, they certainly come out firing and it's, I, I, I know that we've had conversations, um, whether on the show or off, about like Belichick and some of these other coaches almost treating the first few weeks as like experimentation, um, almost like an extended preseason. And I don't know if it's just the way that the schedule has worked out sometimes, but the Chiefs always seem to be playing New England or Baltimore or someone like that early enough in the first one, two, three games of the season that like we are going to come out firing. And I have heard people give Andy credit specifically for how difficult the training camp is for one of the reasons that they step into the season so well prepared. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I heard, I think it was Colin Coward was like, he said something along the lines of, the best NFL coach in, or the best coach in NFL history in September is Andy Reid. Mm-hmm. The best NFL coach in history in January is, is Bill Belichick kind of thing. It wasn't like a shot at Andy Reid or anything. He's just saying Andy Reid is fucking prepared in September. That's just how his team's doing. And so one thing that's interesting, it's not just Andy, it's not just Mahomes. It's our two favorite cats, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. If you're playing the sound effect, I can't hear it. Yeah, it's well, those are a little on the end. Don't worry about it. That's fine. People, people know. People know oh. the sound. Yeah, <laughs> oh. oh, it's going on to a second sound effect here. That's that's a little too much. I don't, I don't want to lose track here. I don't, let's not get too crazy. <laughs> okay, so Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill. I kept I keep thinking about them as maybe the best NFL. Uh, receiving combination of all time. So I kind of did some deep dive into a yards per game look here. Uh, now keep in mind, when you're looking at yards per game, this is going to favor, uh, you know, active players because they don't have those in seasons, you know, where they're a little bit older uh, and they're not, they're not in their prime anymore. So their yards per game is, is going down. But I still wanted to take a look at it, just see how they stacked up against the all-timers. So Tyreek Hill currently ranks 13th in yards per game all time. Um, Some names ahead of them, active guys, Mike Evans, DeAndre Hopkins, Odell Beckham, Antonio Brown, Michael Thomas, 
Julio Jones, and then a retired guy is Calvin Johnson, who obviously it helps him because he retired in his prime. Torrey Holt, Marvin Harrison, Lance Allworth, kind of surprising, uh, and Michael Irvin. So these are the guys, this is the company he's keeping. Um, and Travis Kelsey actually comes in at 21st all time. Um, this is quite a ways ahead of any other tight end. The next tight ends are George Kittle at 37th. And, and keep in mind, George Kittle, he's a guy that's seen on the same level as Travis Kelsey when healthy. But yards per game takes that into account. So, I mean, this is, this is George Kittle when healthy, when he's playing, still, you know, a ways behind Travis Kelsey. Next tight end, Gronkowski at 50th. Um, so the only combos greater on this list, we got three of them. Jerry Rice and Terrell Owens, they didn't. They were on the same team, but Jerry Rice was quite a bit old at that point. Antonio Brown and Mike Evans, right now. Um, Antonio Brown, not really in his prime anymore. Maybe he still gets there, but we'll see. Uh, and then A.J. Green and DeAndre Hopkins right now as well. Obviously, A.J. Green, not what he once was. How in the world does A.J. Green, where is he at in yards per game? A.J. Green, 15th in yards per game all time. With, with how terrible he's been the last few years, I mean, maybe he, there's just been so many games missed instead of just playing poorly. No, I think you're just you're forgetting how great A.J. Green was for a five-year stretch there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of sad to see. Hopefully he gets it back because I love A.J. Green. Um, so, anyways, I, I just wanted to see, you know, is this the best combo of all time? And Tyreek Hill even has the – you know, his rookie year, he really didn't get the chance to be a receiver. I mean, he was a return specialist. Um, if you remove Tyreek Hill's rookie year, which is, you know, this is unfair, obviously, but he moves up to fifth all time in yards per game. So it's just, I wanted to see how lethal this combo was and see if anyone else stacked up. I think the other combinations that stack up are Randy Moss, Chris Carter, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce. I think those are the ones that I really think, I really think it comes down to Randy Moss and Chris Carter. But the thing is, you could say Moss and Gronk a little bit too. Nah, I don't think they. Oh, did they not play? They they didn't play together. Okay. No, I think that happened after. So I I was just I wanted to break this down in terms of, you know, was any combination better than them on the same team? And the only combinations greater than them on this list were, you know, one of them's clearly out of their prime. Both of these guys in their prime at the exact same time, and they're not slowing down, like. It's, it's just kind of amazing. I'm always amazed because, you know, we've got fucking right now our, our next two receiving options are DeMarcus Robinson and, and McCole Hardman. And these two are just, just two fucking idiots just bashing each other on a head with a rubber mallet back and forth to see who can commit the dumber mistake during the game. DeMarcus runs backwards on a third down. McCole Hardman runs out right before the first down line when it's, when it's right there in front of him. McCole Hardman forgets his punt or his helmet on a punt return like, these guys are just like it, it's like dumb and dumber out there. Just like who can create the the bigger mistake in a game? It's just kind of like. But these are the next options. It's just the the receiving game is Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill, and they just cannot be stopped. And so if you add two, three more years of them in their prime to this production, I really just think these two guys go down both as Hall of Famers and as the greatest receiving combination of all time. So this. Uh, speaks to some of what you're talking about. Did you happen to see the numbers that Heath Cummings put out uh, about this game against Cleveland? I guess 70% of Mahomes' targets on Sunday went to Holmes and Hill, and 90% of his passing production 
went to Kelsey and Hill. Um, I mean, that I think is probably what you want to see. One of the things that I think that we even talked about in the last show um, was that what the great quarterbacks tend to do as they really get into their prime um, is find the worst guy on the field and just attack them relentlessly over and over and over again. Who is that worst corner? And we're going to pick them apart. And that Mahomes hadn't quite done that yet. Well, I think that because Hill and Kelsey and Mahomes and Reed, like those four together is so lethal, you almost, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't care who you're lined up against. It doesn't matter. Like, like, yeah, having St. Watkins is great, but does it matter? Like, it's just like these two are enough. Uh, And it's just, you know, what's, what's the argument against the Tampa Bay game? That's, that's the offensive line. I just don't, it's not, it's not the receiving options out there. It's these two. It's just unbelievable to me that they can just the two of them carry the entire passing offense and they just, and it just goes on and on and on. Tyreek Hill with, what do you have? 180 yards receiving in this 197 yards receiving in this game. And he was just, he was feasting, man. They could not cover him. And then Travis Kelsey open over the middle all the time. It's just, when does it end? When do, when do these two get stopped? Um, so I think that like where most people get nervous, myself included, is the obvious fact that if one of those guys goes down for an extended period of time, it's going to get a lot more difficult to play the way that we do. We're going to have to like shift philosophy and maybe by having this bigger offensive line and potentially, you know, a a more effective use of Clyde, it just gives you some diversity and maybe like a little bit of a backup plan, I guess. And, and this is, it's a, that's a valid concern because that's a, a very quick way that the chief season could go South. If one of those guys gets hurt, and you saw this. I mean, the last time we saw this really was around that Colts game, which was like the one game where Mahomes was held under, I don't know what his threshold was, 26 points, I think it was. But that was like the one game where you saw the, the offense not be able to put up production. And it was because I believe it was Tyreek Hill that was out at that time period. So we had Kelsey and I think Watkins was banged up kind of thing. So it was kind of like just Kelsey. So that it's a valid concern. So if one of these guys does get hurt, then there should be reason to be concerned. Um, And that's, you know, I guess we'll deal with that when it comes to it. But I'm also kind of leaning into it's much smarter for the Chiefs to build up their offensive line because they have these two studs and that's enough as weapons. Uh, Now, obviously, the injuries can derail that. But if everybody's healthy, I think it's just, man, right now, fuck, that's what an offense well, and I, I do think, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I mean, how many years have we been begging the Chiefs to get better at linebacker, stand up, run around linebacker? Um, I mean, it was basically the entire time Derek Johnson was here, we wanted somebody else to play with him. Um, and then after he retired, we've been begging for help there. And suddenly 
in the back-to-back drafts, the Chiefs have taken linebackers in the second round. So even though we might be frustrated. To be fair, we did have the the second highest paid linebacker, I believe. So, I mean, it's it's, we, we did try to, we just completely failed. Well, I, all of that is to say that like, it's not like they haven't invested in trying to create depth at those positions. I mean, they haven't gone out and spent first round picks um, at least like in the Andy Reid era, but I mean, we do have to keep in mind that McColl was a second rounder, uh, a panicked one, but a second rounder nonetheless. DeMarcus has been here for like five or six years now, but he was a fourth rounder, um, you know, and they traded up for Noah Gray. It's fifth rounder. It doesn't really mean a whole lot, but I, I do think because they put so much money uh, into signing Sammy Watkins, which is really the marquee move that they have made, um, that and Clyde, I guess, um, outside of Hill and Kelsey, to try to build out the depth, right? Um, they've shown, I think, at least a willingness to try. And I do think that depending on how this year goes, um, you might see another significant investment at the wide receiver position because uh, Travis is not getting any younger and Tyreek is going to need another contract if they decide they want to do that. I certainly hope that they will. Um, but I, I do wonder, because we kind of got to this place during this conversation where we're like, it doesn't really matter because Tyreek and Travis are so good and they certainly have bodies they have opportunities for other guys to be able to establish themselves um do you think that maybe a lot of people ourselves included wasted a lot of anxiety and anguish and hot air about wide receiver two or three or whatever else um during this offseason knowing that the offense is perfectly fine running Demarcus Robinson and McCole Hardman and Byron Pringle out there in a timeshare opposite Kelsey and Hill, basically. Well, no, I mean, I think I, I thought they'd sign somebody for sure. Uh, I thought they'd go get a veteran that just wanted to come here for cheap. Uh, someone, I don't know, T.Y. Hilton or something like that. I mean, I, he wasn't available, but someone like you. I can't believe he went back to Pittsburgh. That's a weird one. Yeah, that would have been weird. That would have been interesting. Uh, but, you know, it's, one of them getting hurt is a valid concern because you don't want one injury to be able to derail your entire season where it might kind of right now if one of those two gets hurt. So that's a concern. Also, and you want to keep building. So another receiver, you know, when Sammy Watkins was at his peak, it did add another uh, level to this offense. So that's fair. Um, but it's kind of just like it's, it's not really necessary, I wouldn't say. I mean, I would say the offensive line is much more important than adding like the the – third receiving option here just because um it's it's more icing on the cake than it is you know building up this this beautiful cake um so i i, I think that's legitimate and i think they might add someone you know mid-season I, I do think that's entirely possible because i just don't see any of these guys emerging i think the hope was that mccall would emerge here but i don't think that's in the cards so i think this receiving core kind of is what it is right now unless they start giving Pringle opportunities and he takes advantage outside of that. I could see them signing someone or trading for someone, I should say, but you know, I don't know that's wasted air, but it's just not, not super important. I do wonder 
So <laughs> did you, I'm, I'm sure you saw the, the press conference question that Pat got asked about, fuck it, Tyreek's down there somewhere. Um, somebody like made a meme of it or something. That's like where it popped up, I guess. But I don't understand why that was a Kyler and and uh, Hopkins thing last year that we're now turning into Patrick Holmes and Tyreek. That's unoriginal. Um, anyway, I did hear Pat say that he saw Tyreek's little hand waving. He's like, and I just kind of chucked it. Um, and ultimately, when he answered that question about Tyreek's down there somewhere. He's like, sometimes it'd be like that. Um, and, and that's something that I do want to, at the very least, shout out the dishwashing gloves, because I do think that uh, the yellow gloves certainly work as like a visual aid for Patrick when guys are, are running down the field. I love that. Um, now, I, I'm curious, though, maybe this is a two into the weeds uh, pun intended, but Tyreek and Travis, we talk about how difficult it would be to lose one or the other. As much as I think it's almost sacrilege to say this, I do think that the Chiefs are better positioned to keep the offense functioning at a somewhat okay level if Tyreek is the one that gets hurt rather than Travis. And it's weird because the Chiefs have four tight ends on their roster, and we seem to sort of like the guys that are behind Travis. Um, but the entire purpose of drafting McCole Hardman was not as a compliment to Tyreek Hill. It was as a potential, if necessary, replacement. And one of the biggest issues... Now, granted, Tyreek has gotten so good, not that he wasn't already good before that whole situation unfolded, um, but he's gotten so good that, like, McColl can't in any way, shape, or form replace Tyreek other than a speed element to stretch the field. But so, like, if, if Tyreek is out for an extended period of time, at the very least you have that guy that, that threatens the defense with that speed – and Travis can still gobble up all the stuff underneath and they can start to incorporate some other guys there. But like, dude, if Kelsey goes out, um, I'm really worried about moving the chains, like really, really worried about moving the chains. That's a guy that they, I don't think can really afford to lose offensively. Um, even if they've tried to incubate themselves with all these other tight ends um, as Travis Kelsey ages, that's something that scares me. I found myself during this Browns game, like any time that Tyreek or Travis would get tackled, starting to be like, don't grab their ankle. Don't do, you know, like just feeling worried because we are only going to get like a few more years, I think at most of Andy Mahomes, Tyreek and Travis all together. And it's like, I want to see as much of those four as possible, but I, I don't know how much longer we're really going to get it. Certainly not at this level. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, th I think we might need to stop talking about these two getting hurt because we're going to have our, our listener audience. They're, they're all kind of panicking right that's now. Fair. Like, that's oh fair. my God, I was having so much fun earlier. Now, now we're just talking about the season going down the shitter. 
speaking of Travis Kelsey, did you watch the Mannings last night? The Manning cast. I, so I didn't. I was at work and I forgot that they were doing this. I heard Peyton's interview with Simmons like a week or two ago, kind of promoting it. And then I completely forgot. And so uh, I, I was at work and didn't catch it. I'm super curious, though. It sounds like the, at least as far as the internet reviews are concerned, like it was an absolute blast and that maybe Travis Kelsey kind of stole the show. Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't say that about Travis Kelsey necessarily. I mean, they're, each of the guests were good, but I mean, it was almost kind of better without the guests. Just, I mean, you got three guys talking on, you know, Zoom. So it's kind of tough. They're kind of talking over each other. But yeah, I, I mean, I didn't see anyone say anything bad about it. And dude, it was it was so good. It was fucking enlightening. It was funny. I, I feel like it's, it might kind of like revolutionize, uh, you know, how they broadcast games. And it's just you don't need to focus on like being professional um, and, and being like good at their job. You just need two guys who are, are comfortable with each other. Two guys who like each other, they can make fun of themselves, they can make fun of each other, because it's like, sure, they might have some awkward moments in here where, like, they miss a play in the game or something, but they're just, like, having a good time. You're having a good time with them. And, and you know, and it's kind of refreshing to see, because especially with those two, because they're big names. And, you know, before a year or two ago, you don't, you don't even know that these guys have personalities. Like, Peyton Manning's, like, you think of him as, like, a robot. Like, that's kind of the way he played in the NFL, so it's kind of just like, like, there's no way this guy's funny, but they're both like legitimately funny. And dude, it was just like, and they're sharing insights. It was, I was hanging on to every single word. It was, it was truly amazing. And then they got, they got Russell Wilson on for the end of the game. Um, so it was, it was really fun. They got, they got to play at the one yard line for Russell Wilson to like, to, to, you know, talk about with the Super Bowl thing. They didn't really address it. They kind of, that was their one missed thing. Like, Hey Russ, what would you call here at the one yard line? Uh, but you know, it kind of helped that the game was so good because it kind of kind of leaned into it. But dude, they were both fantastic. It was awesome, and Travis Kelsey was on there, so that was cool. Um, oh, and we actually have our uh, we're debuting a new segment here right now. <laughs> right is, now, right now. Don't get any ideas, Ryan. Please undo it. This is the Dov Kleinman take of the week. Everybody knows Donald Kleiman on Twitter. So we're calling this segment, My Name is Dom. My, my name is Dom. Travis Kelsey, he don't even know who he's going to play next week. He don't know if they're playing the Raiders or the, the, the Chargers. And my name is Dom. And that was the Dom Kleiman take of the week. I, I think he tweeted that out. So I'm just kind of reading that verbatim from his um, – Twitter feed. Um, so thanks. Thanks, Dov. Thanks for your take. I've uh, been looking, been reading you all off season. You're a great reporter, a great independent reporter, not employed by anybody. And we all love you. So that's the Dov climbing take of the week that Travis Kelsey did not know who we were playing. This week. That reminded me of, and that was talking soccer. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to go back to something that you said about Peyton and Eli. Um, you talked about like two guys that even if they're not like polished and it's not this highly produced telecast, um, but two guys that like each other and kind of already have a relationship and a rapport um, and they're comfortable with one another. And, and really, I think that 
with Peyton and Eli, it's also probably a matter of at this point, I mean, they're retired. They're, I don't know if we need to get into the Eli Manning Hall of Fame conversation, but whatever. Like they're both very accomplished NFL quarterbacks. They're really secure in themselves, right? Um, and I think that that helps a lot. They're not trying to make something of themselves at the point that they're sitting here on TV. And for so many players turned analysts or, you know, analysts that are trying to make their way into the big chair or whatever, I think there's so much in terms of like nerves and stuff that goes into it that makes it seem unnatural. I mean, you can just go back to the early episodes of Amateur Hour and kind of get that sense too, where at this point, we're just kind of like, whatever, we we are who we are. Um, and so I think- you say it's like, my name is Dove. <laughs> I mean, but I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of like, and, and look, this is uh, in some ways maybe an unfair comparison, but it's it's at the same time, like I think it, it kind of tracks as far as Peyton and Eli, you know, uh, compared to like an early career quarterback doing this same thing that Peyton and Eli did on the broadcast. But think about like Al Michaels. Al Michaels looks so comfortable every time he's on television. He has complete control of that booth, of his voice. Nothing is ever nervous or rushed or whatever. And I think that that in some ways kind of speaks to Peyton and Eli just being like, we're not even really taking this seriously. We're just going to try to have some fun. I mean, they're like amateur hour and that's not, you know, that's meant to be complimentary to them, even though, you know, they're obviously both very accomplished guys. I thought it was a, I thought it was a plug. So I, I'm curious. Um, I feel like I saw you endorsing like one major point that they made. I can't remember what it was though. What was like your main because you said it was insightful. Um, so what what things do you feel like you learned from them that might be on that same level of like the way that Tony Romo is helping people, you know, enjoy games on Sundays? Well, so the, the big thing that they kind of said that I, I, you know, we just kind of always talk about was halftime adjustments. Mm. And they were kind of just saying that that's kind of almost like a cliche because the halftime, the NFL halftime is so short I mean, it's like 14 minutes, I think. They're like, you basically, you walk down this long-ass tunnel, you go use the bathroom, you come back out, you, you know, you get a drink of water, your coaches are coming down from an elevator from the press box, so it takes them a long time to get down. And then you spend like two minutes together, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we just, we're doing good, we're doing all right, we want to keep doing what we're doing in the first half. And then someone calls out, hey, we got one minute left, so we're due back out there. And it was just kind of, they're kind of breaking down what halftime is like. And it's like, mm. there's, there's not time for adjustments. I mean, maybe a coach can sit there and, you know, come up with like an idea or two, like something they're going to change because he has 10 minutes to, to think maybe, but like, it's not like they go in there and everybody's like regrouping and like coming up with this new game plan. Like there's just not enough time for it. So it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting breakdown that just halftime adjustments is more cliche than it is reality. I wonder if that's unfair because Peyton kind of coached his own offense. He's like, no, it's fine. I got it. I'll make the adjustments in my head and call the plays at the line. And so, you know, it's fine. It's all up here. I've got it. Um, 
I, I also, God, there was one other thing that I saw people talking about from that broadcast that they felt like was kind of revelatory. And I can't remember what it was. was a bunch of, how Eli Manning's had a fire alarm just going off for like two minutes <laughs> and nobody knew what the hell was going on. And it was just like, <clears throat> uh, and they just, they just played right through it. It was just like, yeah, yeah, let's just keep going. Like we have no idea what's going on here. There was, there was many funny moments. And then think of how many announcers add something to a game that aren't named Tony Romo. Like how many how many football announcers right now do you care about? Oh, it's great that he's on. I think Tony Romo is doing a great job, uh, and I think he adds a lot to the broadcast. Who who else is adding something? I mean, Al Michaels, he's probably one of like the best to ever do it, but everybody else just comes on and, and is a worse version of Al Michaels. So it's not everyone's just using the same basic formula when it's like, no, we should have you know different ideas coming here. There's different ways to watch a football game. We don't need one play-by-play guy who's doing his standard job, and then one analyst guy who's giving cliche after cliche, and this is the broadcast for every single football game. It's just, that's not what we need. It's not what we want. So um, real quick, and then we'll we'll shift gears, because maybe this isn't um, the most uh, entertaining conversation for people, so I don't, I don't want to go too, too deep here. But I will say, um, I guess Amazon, like, acquired the rights to I think it's like Thursday night football or something uh, starting a few years from now. And it's like a long deal. I think they get it for at least like half a decade. And one of the podcasts that I listen to is very like media nerd stuff. It's called the press box. Um, and they were talking about the excitement among like production people about the possibility of suddenly this service that has never done any kind of NFL coverage at all, being able to completely rethink how it's done. They don't own any like equipment. They don't have, you know, producers on their staff. They have no one that has any experience with the NFL whatsoever. It was just, we're going to get this contract and now they can build something from scratch. And so they can really think about what, how an NFL game should be produced to the world. Um, and there are people that are really excited about that possibility because I know that when you see some of the alternate broadcasts, whether it's this Manning cast or the Nickelodeon stuff during the playoffs, um, and I saw that they're going to do, I think, like a one one night a week on Wednesdays or something on Nickelodeon, they're doing NFL slime time. Um, and I think it's like hosted by Adam Schefter's kid and Nate Burleson and some of these other things, you know, like they're their networks are kind of starting to try to think outside the box. I know uh, maybe during the college football playoff, they have like the coaches broadcast and some of these things. And I don't know how good many of these are. Coaches is good, but they're talking above so many of us. Like mm. I know I watch football my entire life and a lot of what they're talking about, I can't quite keep up with. The Mannings were good at dumbing stuff down a little bit so that you could kind of understand um, but like the coaches get so, so in depth that it's some people love it, I'm sure. But even for me, it's too, it's too in depth yeah. and it's, it's just too much. And they're, they're always rewinding and, and they're, they're just coaches. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit different. So I don't, I don't know if other people can pull this off necessarily, uh, but I was just wildly impressed by how good it is. Like, I can't wait to turn on tune in next week. They're doing, didn't they pick, they're going to do like three games or something. It's like the first 
they're doing 10 games. I think they're all Monday night. And I'll, okay. I don't know which 10. I don't know if it's the first 10 or what, but I, they're doing it next week, I know. So, and is it uh, always, it's just like ESPN2 instead of ESPN or something? Hmm. All right. I might, might have to give me some ESPN action. Um, okay. So before we go real quick, I think um, there's a couple things that I would like to talk about with the defense and specifically, I would like to start here. Um, Gay watch 2021 was intended to replace Sammy watch, but we can't it's where we've got a delayed release of gay watch this year. I will say, however, fortunately for us, we do get Sammy Watch on Sunday night. So we'll we'll get to have a little rekindling of the watch kins uh, since we play the Ravens on Sunday night football. Um, but I Sammy, have you plays uh justin houston an old friend made a play for baltimore last night a few a couple old chiefs on the ravens there okay uh too bad about all the injuries that they've been going through i think even more injuries announced today coming out of that game against the raiders um, their uh, new running back looked good uh and then he totally disappeared in the second half i think he got hurt again and it was kind of wasn't really reported on um i'm, I'm very curious because i'm a fantasy team but tyson williams he looked fast he looked good so uh, I feel like I saw some tweets about some exchange issues between he and Lamar. Was there some fumbling going on there? Uh, maybe one or two. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Willie Gay and, by extension, Nick Bolton. Um, these guys have been key additions to the defense over the last two years, uh, but Willie Gay brought along very slowly last year and then ultimately getting hurt right before the playoffs. And that was obviously very frustrating. Um, Willie having this turf toe basically right before the season starts this year, um, I would say in some ways a concerning trend uh, now getting hurt in consecutive seasons and in all reality only like, you know, eight or nine months apart from these two injuries. Um, it sounds like Willie Gay will be back, you know, soon, relatively soon. Um, but one thing I actually kind of like is that if Willie Gay were on the field, I don't know if we'd be seeing Nick Bolton. Um, there's this like constant talking point about how Spagnolo doesn't really like to play rookies, um, was hesitant to do so with Thornhill, um, same thing with Willie Gay and some of these guys that just have this great raw athleticism, which isn't necessarily Nick Bolton's MO, but I think if it weren't for Gay Watch 2021 having this delayed release, I don't know if we would have been able to see Nick Bolton on Sunday actually go out there and look pretty okay. I'm kind of glad he was forced into action. Um, your thoughts on Nick Bolton thus far, his darkness. Uh, yeah, the delayed response on Gay Watch. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, or not you. Um, uh, I thought he looked good, actually. Uh, there's still too much Neiman, obviously. Mm. Um, but aside from that, I saw Hitchens had a, a terrible PFF grade. Um, so I don't know where that necessarily came from, but I, I saw a few plays from Bolton. So I was kind of excited with what we saw from him. 
Um, I'd obviously like to see more from Gay or Gay Watch. I, I don't. I hardly remember anything he did last year. I, I feel like he hardly played. Mm-hmm. I have no sense of how he's he's gonna do. I only have really one big takeaway from the defense, and I I really think they didn't have their two tone setters. They got two tone setters on defense. It's Frank Clark who brings the attitude and Tyron Matthew who brings the attitude. And they didn't have either of them out there. And I, I felt like they were just kind of lost. It was just kind of, you know, 11 guys that needed an alpha out there and they just didn't have it. So they were just kind of all doing their jobs, doing their best. Um, but they just, you know, weren't able to, to produce any stops. They didn't have any oomph uh, that comes from those two guys who gets the rest of the defense ready, both mentally and emotionally. And I, so I just thought it's having both of those guys gone uh, was kind of too much for the defense, even though they ended up getting the job done at the end. So I, I definitely agree with you, but I'll take it one step further. Um, I think that really what we ended up seeing without Frank and Tyron was a defense that does have a lot of young pieces that ultimately, to me, it just showed that they're not ready to play without the likes of of Tyron and Frank. Like, there were a lot of people that were like, clear, like, show, uh, you know, a clip of Sunday's game at the contract negotiations and Tyron should get as much money as he wants. Um, And that's fair. I mean, I'm sure people aren't being that serious about it. But let's think about it this way. Um, The two biggest plays let's say three biggest plays uh, that the defense made were Thornhill forcing a fumble, Thornhill breaking up that long pass uh, with pretty much perfect coverage. And then you could say Mike Hughes's interception or like Chris Jones getting after the quarterback. Um, But two of the biggest plays that the defense made were made by Juan Thornhill. Um, So I think that that's a really great place to start. In some ways, I'm a little worried that the delays in Matthew's contract are about them saying we want Thornhill to take over for him. Um, There was this offseason storyline that I think Josh Briscoe was the one that wrote about it. And he had asked Thornhill how he felt about like coming into camp before the veterans, working with the rookies and stuff like that. And Thornhill talked about how it was an opportunity to be the alpha on that defense. I get to do all the communicating. I am the best player on that unit. I'm the most veteran player here. I get to be the leader. Um, And so it almost felt a little bit like grooming in some ways. And so when he was playing late in games in the preseason, it was like, you know, is he ready? Is why is he at this place on the depth chart? He shouldn't be playing this late in these games. And again, it was opportunities for him to be the leader on the field. Um, And so I do think that he showed very well against the Browns, at least, you know, when it counted. Um, But I I guess the other thing that it kind of made me think about was like, if you don't have Frank and you don't have Tyron, outside of the obvious being Chris Jones, like who are the guys on that defense that you want to lean on? Especially considering the fact that as of right now, Let's just be fair. We don't know the future, but Tyron hasn't gotten this extension and everyone assumes that Frank Clark is going to be released. So if these are the two like alphas, the two tone setters that we have on defense, you know, then we have to figure out who are those guys going to be. And I think that the top candidates are Thornhill 
and Snead, and then it's basically Willie Gay and Nick Bolton. I mean, you could maybe think about defensive linemen, but let, let's get your thoughts. Well, well, it should be Hitchens. Um, uh, you know, you're the guy he'd ex- you expect to step into that, and I think he is. He probably displays more leadership, um, you know, than he is a quality of player. Like I don't, I don't think Hitchens is, you know, like the, the best of players, but I think he's supposed to be a pretty good leader. Uh, so you kind of expect him to step into that role, but even he might be a guy who's gone by next year. So, it's, I mean, it's an interesting point where if all these guys are gone next year, I don't think there's much chance that Matthew's gone personally. But, yeah, I think I think that presence was being missed out there on Sunday. Yeah, and I just don't – Sneed's in his second year. I don't think he's ready to step up necessarily. But, I mean, you know, leadership can come from different places. Some guys are just never not built for to be leaders. I mean, Matthew's – Matthew's got to be one of the best leaders in the NFL. Uh, I mean, don't even look around the team. Just look around the league at different players that kind of recognize him, that look up to him, that, you know, took him under their wings. Like, Tyron Matthews' respect just runs far and wide. He's just a natural-born leader. So replacing that uh, on any given game, it's just extremely difficult. Uh, I don't think anyone's prepared to handle that. But, yeah, it's it's – Beyond those guys, the emotional leader, I would point at Hitchens for right now for who was out there on Sunday. Uh, but really, I think it's just an area that's lacking. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know if I got to this on Nick Bolton, but I think the thing that really impressed me about him in this game was that the plays that he made, um, almost every single one of them, when you ended up seeing him make a tackle, it was like standing up his guy, and fighting through contact to ultimately wrap the guy up and make the play. Um, and that, you know, that was something that, especially early in his career, was always talked about that Derek Johnson didn't have the ability to do it. Um, you know, that, that he always wanted to avoid contact. And so seeing Bolton, like, be strong, you know, at the point of attack, I guess, is maybe the way that you would say it. But basically just fighting off blocks and making tackles, I thought was was great. And, and especially because they allowed Damian Wilson to leave this offseason. I believe he signed a one-year deal with the Jaguars. Um, that was a guy that played with an edge. He really made people pay when he hit them. Um, they always knew that he was coming. And, and I really thought that looking at some of like at least the highlights of Nick Bolton, that that guy just seems like an absolute freight train. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned Hitchens, that's another guy that at least like if chiefs fans were in charge, won't be on the team next year, you know? So a lot of those, you know, veterans, at least there's some big question marks about the future of those guys. And so in some ways, this early stretch of the season or this year in general, um, or maybe some of the things that you're asking Tyron Matthew to do or Frank Clark to do, or, or, you know, Anthony Hitchens to do is like, show these guys how to do your job because we know you're not going to be here forever. Um, and, and so I think that the development of guys like Thornhill and Sneed and Bolton and Gay throughout the year are some of the most important storylines for the future of this team. Um, even though, you know, it's still pretty much all about Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. Um, if they really want to be competitive across the board, they've got some young guys that really need to get ready this year. 
And so at least in some ways, I'm, I'm excited about Bolton getting those snaps because he may have just not even gotten an opportunity if it weren't for the injury. It, it, it's almost the same scenario as like Rimmers going down the preseason and Niang getting in the lineup and then not giving that job away. Same thing with Trey Smith. LDT broke his hand. Trey Smith gets out there and they're like, well, clearly this guy is, is ready, you know, but sometimes it just takes opportunities like that for it to open the coach's eyes and see that these guys can play on Sunday. Yeah. And, and final point here, with the Chiefs in the position that they are, their eyes should always be on January. It should always be, it shouldn't be, you know, who's the best guy to man this position this Sunday. It should be who's going to who's gonna give us the best chance in January when we're competing in playoffs where we'll know we'll be. We know we're making the playoffs. So how can this team be the best that it can in January? Mm-hmm. And that's something where, you know, Ben Neiman, maybe he knows this defense more than other guys, and so he gets on the field because he knows it better. So he's going he's gonna to play better on Sunday than, you know, Nick Bolton. But – is it going to be like that if Nick Bolton plays 16 games? Can he surpass what Ben Neiman is now if he gets this experience in these regular season games that just, for us, don't simply mean as much as it does to other teams because we'll know we'll be in the tournament at the end? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. Um, and I think that ultimately that's where I think a lot of people that argue for, you know, trying to find some snaps for Darius Fountain – um, you know, or something like that. Um, it, it, it's like, how can we get to the best version of this team? And if you've seen guys like D Rob or, or McColl, or, you know, even for some people, maybe somebody like Charvarius Ward, it's like, we've seen a lot from these guys and it doesn't really feel like enough. So maybe it's time to try to get some other guys ready. Um, as that eye toward becoming the best version of yourselves in January. Um, I would say that uh, maybe the last thing that they need to focus on, if that's really what they want to do, is not just Blake Bell, uh, but also Travis Kelsey and, and potentially any number of other backups. How many people can we get to do a quote-unquote QB sneak other than Patrick Mahomes? We got to get diverse down there in short yardage and in the red zone, man. Because clearly we can't let Pat ever QB sneak ever again. <laughs> a, a litany of weird uh, trick plays that when they don't work, man, they look weird. Let's throw a screen pass to Mike Rivers. And it's like, well, that looks weird when it doesn't work. I tell let's you what, have, that play. Travis Kelsey at quarterback and, and then have Patrick Mahomes commit a false start. Like, well, that looked kind of weird. <laughs> and after that false start, we had a call timeout. <laughs> after that, they still didn't get the play in. Um, I will say on the Rimmers screen, it was like one Brown it, that broke through and randomly made the play. It was perfectly executed except for one guy. Yeah, it was it was Creed Humphrey. I don't know if it was, you know, his fault or anything, but he was the guy kind of trailing uh, the defender. And yeah, if he gets the block on him, Rimmers can cartwheel into the end zone. Um, last thing from me today. So if you need to prepare any final thoughts, this would be the time to do that, Dirk. Um, last thought from me today. I saw this tweet that was being sent to our good friend, Craig Stout. Um, he talked about how the Chiefs, I guess, were like wearing out teams because you have to be perfect to beat the Chiefs. 
the Chiefs are so good that like anytime, as soon as you make a mistake, they're going to pounce on you. And so this guy at Corey O'Donnell, shout out to you, Corey. You're verified and I've never heard of you before, but he did the research like Bob. On, on opponent record the week after playing the Chiefs during the Patrick Mahomes era. Uh, there are seven teams that went on the bye that don't go into this. So if the numbers seem off, that's the explanation. But teams are 23 and 22 the week after playing Patrick Mahomes, 500. Does that, does that make you think anything? I was, I was thinking that there were a lot of teams that were like really trying to shoot their wad against the Chiefs and that this stat was going to be like, man, that teams are only winning like eight out of you know every 30 games or something but they're 23 and 22 so i don't really know what to make of it that's that's maybe the most inconsequential stat i have ever heard because it's 500 essentially <laughs> it's the jeff fisher of stats <laughs> well taking this random nfl team are they going to win next week well it's 50 50 <laughs> 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 That's accurate. We, we, checks out. Well, yeah, 50-50. That, that, that math adds up. Well, that was my uh that was my deep dive. That I actually, I mean, I didn't even do it. I that's just one tweet that I found. <laughs> I was really good with numbers today. Very, very good with numbers. Welcome to season 10 of Amateur Hour. Here. Um I am Ryan Scott Hall. He is his darkness and the best. Go join.